0: You will open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. Some of you may know the name, Brother Ben M. Bogard. He was a very influential missionary Baptist pastor in Arkansas in the early 1900s until his death in 1951. He was one of the founders of the seminary in Little Rock and longtime pastor of Antioch, the church that owns the school. And there's a story that one time in a church service, he called on a man to pray. And the man prayed for a long time. Later in the service, when it came time to call on someone to pray, Brother Bogard called on the same man again. And this time the prayer was a little bit shorter. Later, Brother Bogard asked him again to pray in the same service. And this third prayer was pretty short. And Brother Bogard said, now that you're caught up, stay caught up. It's been said before that a man who prays much in private will make short prayers in public. I don't know if it's true or not, but it's possible that man was using that public prayer time to, quote, catch up on the private prayers that he's missed out on. But public prayer is not the time for that. That's not what they're all about. Now, last week we looked at private prayer, both from Jesus and Paul, and we learned that our private prayers should never be offered for show never to be seen like the hypocrites and the Pharisees. Instead, we should be alone with God. And then we can pray very detailed, private, specific requests, just pouring our hearts out and let him reward us, definitely with his peace and maybe with much more. But when Jesus warned us in Matthew 6 not to take our prayers to the street corner to be seen, did he mean that all public prayers are evil? I think we know better than that, right? Public prayers are not always wrong. Jesus prayed publicly, quite often in the gospel, so that sort of settles that. But there's a difference between your intimate prayers with God and the public corporate prayers that we pray with one another. and thankfully, Jesus taught about those as well. And we'll see that today as we continue this section on prayer from the Sermon on the Mount. And I wrote in our, our bulletin, the focus is, public prayers should be short, still humble and universal. And we'll talk about that. Let's read verse uh, 5 through 8. I know we looked at 5 and 6 last week. We won't spend much time there, but kind of jump back into the context. Let's look at 5 through 8 in Matthew 6. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. We'll stop there and read the rest in in just a little bit. We know from last week that Jesus was teaching about private prayer in verse 5 and 6. It's pretty obvious just simply based on the illustration of Him telling us to go into our closet or go into our room when we pray. That's obviously a private, intimate prayer. But also in verse 6, if you look at all these words that are either you or your, all of those pronouns are singular. You could sort of think of it as, you know, you individually Uh, Go to your own room, pray to your heavenly Father, and He will reward you personally. It's it's very singular. It's private prayer. But there's a neat transition in verse 7 to public prayer because the pronouns shift from singular to the plural, and then they continue that way throughout the rest of the section. Some modern English translations, it's tough to see that. I read from the ESV, and you couldn't tell a difference. It's still just the word you. Because in English, the word you is pretty catch-all. King James makes it easy to see it's plural. It uses the word ye, which is that old English word for what we say, y'all. We're from the South. So in in verse verse 7, when you see the word you, you can think y'all. It's plural. And it's going to continue that way. And that's important to see because Jesus was not condemning all public prayer. We've prayed multiple times in this service already We weren't wrong to do that. But just like there is a way to pray privately that pleases God, there's a way to pray publicly that pleases God. And so let's start to see what that is. First of all, in verse 7, we see that public prayer should not be long, drawn out, and unnecessarily repetitive. That's the way the pagans prayed. When the ancient pagans prayed to their false gods, they just babbled on as if they needed to pester their God and just keep tapping him on the shoulder to get his attention. This word for heap up empty phrases, uh, I think the King James uses vain repetition there for this this section. It comes from a single Greek word that literally means to babble or to stammer or to just say the same thing over and over again. Have you ever heard some people arguing or maybe you've been in an argument where One side does nothing except repeat the same thing over and over. Maybe they get louder, but they just keep saying the same thing over and over again as if something magically is going to change. That's sort of the idea of this word, is that the pagans just kept on stammering and babbling and saying the same thing over and over again because they felt like their gods would hear them because of their many words. The Old Testament gives us an extreme example of this and one of my favorite stories in the Bible. It's in 1 Kings chapter 18 when Elijah challenged the false prophets of Baal to see who truly was God and to see who would answer prayer first. And this is what the Bible says about the false prophets of Baal, that they called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon. That's probably longer than that man prayed in Brother Bogart's service. And the Bible continues, they cried aloud and cut themselves with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. We know why nobody answered. (laughs) Bell's a false god. He doesn't have ears. He can't hear. Jesus commanded us in verse 8 not to be like that. Do not be like them. Why not? Jesus specifically said it's because our Heavenly Father already knows what we need. So lengthy, babbling, repetitive public prayers, perhaps they show a lack of confidence that God actually hears. Do you not trust that God hears when you say something once? He knows what you need. Be confident in that. Now, to go back to the story from 1 Kings just to finish that. The false prophets heaped up words all day long, hours and hours and hours of them praying to Baal. Baal never responded. This was Elijah's entire prayer. O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you are Lord. And that you have turned their hearts back. Period. That's his entire prayer after the prophets of Baal had been raving on for hours and hours and hours. And God immediately responded by sending fire from heaven to consume the entire sacrifice that Elijah put on the altar. Elijah's prayer was pretty short, pretty to the point, because public prayers are not meant to last all day. God's not impressed with man's verbosity. He invented language. He doesn't need to hear it back and forth to him constantly. But just because a prayer is short doesn't necessarily mean it pleases God, right? There are other characteristics of public prayer that we need to consider. So if we look back in Matthew 6, beginning in verse 9, we'll see some of those. We'll read verse 9 through 13. Uh, Sometimes we title this the Lord's Prayer. Some people call it the model prayer. Uh, I'm fine either way. It's okay. It's just a prayer that Jesus gave us. We'll talk about it. Look at verse 9. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The first part of verse nine, when Jesus said, pray then like this, you could, this could literally be translated, therefore, you all pray in this manner or like this. And what that tells us is that Jesus is giving us an example of acceptable, good public prayer. It doesn't mean that every public prayer must repeat these words verbatim. This wasn't a... uh, a structure to just repeat constantly. If we did that, what would this turn into? Possibly one of those vain repetitions, like the pagans he just condemned. But it's really ironic and sad that pretty clear, pretty early on in Christianity, there were some groups who taught you need to recite this prayer three times a day. I read one commentator that said, in light of verse seven and eight. It is highly ironic that this prayer has come to be repeated mechanically in many Christian traditions. People still do that today. Jesus did not give this as an equation to be repeated, but as an example. Pray in this manner. Pray like this. The same author said, we may choose to pray these exact words thoughtfully and reflectively. It's not wrong to do that. He also says, or you can put in your own words similar concerns and as long as the key components and attitudes are present. That was what Jesus was teaching us. So I want to show you a few of the components before we kind of go through you know, the verses. One of the components of this prayer is that it's universal in nature. And we see that with the pronouns still being plural. I mentioned how we kind of shifted from you to you all. And if you look in this prayer, you see words like our, us. We, so if you're leading a group in prayer, it's right to speak for the whole group and use these pronouns that include everybody. I've heard some people say, well, I don't, I don't know their heart. I can't pray for them. Their heart's between them and God, but if you're leading a group, it's very good to include everyone. Jesus did it. He taught us that. There's another aspect of this uh, universal component is that since you're praying on behalf of other people, Notice how generic and basic the prayer is. I mean, really think about it. There are no intricate, specific details given here. No specific requests. God is praised. He's asked to provide, asked to forgive, asked to deliver from evil. That's it. That's pretty basic. So a a benefit to this universal and basic nature of a prayer in public is that everyone listening can agree. Everyone who's sort of under the umbrella of this prayer, if I can use that terminology, can say, Amen, I need that too. I I want that. I need God's provisions. I need forgiveness. Yes. The specifics about your individual life and those details, how you feel personally, things like that, those should be reserved for your private prayers. We saw that last week. Paul taught the uh, the Philippians to let your requests be made known unto God. Don't neglect to do that. It's wonderful to pour your heart out to God with details and specifics in your private prayer. But since our lives are all different, that's not ideal for public prayer. Here's an easy example. If you're looking for a new job, that's something you should pray about. But that doesn't mean everyone else here is looking for a new job. They may be happy with their job, or they may be retired, or they may be 10 years old. So they don't need a new job. So that's not something to add to a group prayer, but you could just say, Lord, provide for us, which is what Jesus said, give us our daily bread, we'll talk more about that. So those are a few components that set private prayer and, and public prayer apart but one thing that should always be involved anytime we pray is humility. In verse 9, Jesus began the prayer that way. In a humble manner, he said, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. We need to first recognize that we're always praying to our Heavenly Father. That's true privately or publicly, but the idea of God being our Father. Never forget that If you've trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you have a relationship with God. You're his son or his daughter. He is your father. That's part of the reason we don't have to pester him by piling up empty phrases to get his attention. He is our loving father. But he's not an earthly father. Jesus specifically said our father in heaven. As we pray, we need to remember to be reverent towards God. There are no prayers in the Bible that begin with, hey, big guy, or to the man upstairs. Prayers in the Bible are reverent, Lord, Heavenly Father. Those those are the respectful, right ways to begin a prayer, things like that, not, hey, hey, big guy. A humble and reverent attitude recognizes that God is in heaven and we're not. And it also recognizes his holiness. When Jesus said, hallowed be your name, it means that he's holy. God is is consecrated and set apart from this universe. I'm going to make a statement and just stay with me before you throw something at me. God's not a part of this world. By that, I don't mean he's uninvolved. Or that he doesn't care, or anything like that. By that, I mean he's the creator of the world, not a mere part of it. As the creator, he is not bound by time and space like we are, he's not just a cog here. He's set apart, he is holy and sanctified and hallowed, and not everyone in our world realizes that. But we should we should realize God's hallowed and holy nature and we should be humble before him. One day everyone will realize that. One day when Jesus comes and sets up God's kingdom, everyone will bow and confess his lordship. There will be no doubt who the hallowed one is and that's the very next thing Jesus prayed. Verse 10, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Every believer in Christ should look forward to the day when Jesus returns and makes all things right. If our hearts don't long for that day, something's wrong with us. Why would you not want Jesus to come back? This world is terrible. We need Jesus to help. It won't get any better till he comes back. So when that's prayed publicly, we can all say amen to that. And Jesus also prayed for the Father's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. The Father's will is a pretty deep concept. The word will refers to a wish or a desire. And so when we're talking about the Father's will, it means what God wants to happen. It's what God wishes or or desires to happen. But in our fallen, sinful world, God's desires are not always fulfilled or followed. That doesn't mean that anything ever happens outside of God's control. That doesn't mean that anything surprises him or that he cannot work good in spite of man's evil. He did that in Joseph's life, didn't he? He did that in Jesus's life. God is in control and ultimately Christ will return and God's will will be accomplished. But that doesn't mean that every single individual decision that people make is what God desires. Here's just a couple of verses to prove that On this earth right now, God's will doesn't always happen. Paul told Timothy Timothy that God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Peter wrote that God is not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. That's God's will. That's what he desires and wants. He wants people to know him and trust him through Jesus rather than dying in their sins. But sadly, we know that not everyone does that. Not everyone believes because God still allows that person to make his or her choice. But what should we be praying for? For God's will. Because God's desires are always what, is, uh, what are best and right for people. So as we're waiting on his ultimate will to be fulfilled, as we're waiting on his kingdom to come... We need him to provide for us in the meantime. That's the very next thing Jesus asked in verse 11. Let's read it again. It's a really short verse, but it's interesting and powerful. Give us this day our daily bread. God is the provider of all of our physical needs. I hope we know that. Here's the, the emphasis is on food. And the universal and basic nature of the way Jesus worded this is, is pretty awesome to me. We all need food, but the prayer for food doesn't dive into the details of how it will be acquired. It's just asked for, because it might be different for different people. I've I've heard this illustration before, and it's always stuck with me. Suppose a man in our congregation is a farmer who needs rain so that he can be provided for. But there's another man in our congregation who's a construction worker, and he needs good weather so that he can go to work. Well, what would happen if the farmer stood up in public prayer and asked for rain? That's a tough request for the construction worker to say amen to because he needs to work tomorrow. And he can if it's raining. Say, my goodness, how do we tackle that publicly with so many different careers and lives? And oh, my goodness. Don't stress. Jesus showed us the best way to do it. Just keep it simple and ask God to provide and leave the details up to him. We serve a God who is so amazing that he takes every individual in their life and their career and their work, he takes all of that into consideration and he works with it perfectly. So you don't have to stress out about the prayer. Oh my goodness, what about him and her? Lord, provide for us. I'll leave the details up to you. I trust that you'll handle that. So trust him daily. This word daily in the verse it's actually a really rare word, and it's sort of difficult to define. Scholars kind of disagree about its meaning. Some, some think the idea of daily is best. Some say it's kind of the idea of the next day, because you're already awake that day. Uh, and then others say maybe the best way to translate it is that give us what is needed or give us what is sufficient. And I, I think all those are fine. To me, when Jesus said, give us this day our daily bread, it's easy for me to hear an echo of how the Israelites were told to go gather the manna. And I think that's great. If you remember the Israelites in the Old Testament, they gathered enough manna for one day, and they were were to trust God that he would provide again the next day. And if they tried to hoard it up, it would rot. It would not work. Christ's prayer here is along those lines of trusting God each and every day to provide. He didn't instruct us to pray for a pantry full of food and a deep freeze filled with deer meat. Everybody got real quiet all of a sudden. (laughs) Those things are not wrong. Not wrong at all, especially the deer meat. We are in the extremely blessed minority of this world to have the provisions that we have. Shame on us if our surplus of blessings causes us to neglect to thank God or still ask Him to provide each day. Because He does. Whether you have one meal left in your cabinet or a month's worth, it's all from God. And we all need God to provide every day. That's something we can pray publicly. That's a universal request. Lord, give us what we need today. Verse 12 is very similar. Forgive us our debts. Does anybody here not need forgiveness? I didn't think so. We all need forgiveness. We all need God to be merciful to us. Now, in your private prayers, it's good to be specific and detailed and, and, and confess specific sins. God knows what you did. You're not surprising Him if you give details. He already knows it. But in public prayer, my sin may not be yours. But we all need forgiveness. So whoever leads in prayer can say, Lord, forgive us of our sins. We all need forgiveness. That's humble. And that's universal. That's basic. But if you notice in this verse, Jesus added something. He added in verse 12, as we also have forgiven our debtors. Jesus added this phrase to teach us the importance of forgiving others. If you look down at verse 14 and 15, let's read those verses. Not technically part of the prayer, but just sort of a, a tag-ending of teaching. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. God may withhold forgiveness from you. That has nothing to do with salvation there. This is about fellowship. If a saved person who has trusted in the Lord and been forgiven and given eternal life, if that person refuses to forgive others, then he or she will not be in close fellowship with God because that person is disobeying God's commands to forgive others. And if we're living disobedient lives, there is is that sin barrier between us and God, not in a relationship way. The relationship is always there if you're saved, but the fellowship may not be. And that's what Jesus is teaching us. If we refuse to obey God by not forgiving others, then our daily walk and our fellowship with the Lord will be hindered because we're being disobedient. So not only does this teach us that we need to forgive others, but we need to forgive others to stay in fellowship with God. We all need forgiveness, so forgive each other because God forgave us. Finally, in verse 13, Jesus asked God for guidance and protection. He said, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Don't we all want God's guidance in our lives and God's protection in our lives, regardless of the specifics? Sometimes people pray, Lord, lead God and direct us. I love that little triad. I don't know who came up with that first. I've heard it my whole life uh, in church. Lord, lead, guide, and direct us. I love it. We do need to understand with verse 13 that when we're asking for God's leadership and protection, that's not a prayer for an easy life. It's not a prayer to be free from trials where nothing bad happens. There's some preachers who peddle you know, a prosperity gospel. If you believe in Jesus and you have faith, well, your your life's going to be awesome and great. And if it's not, it's because you lack faith. That's not true. This is not a prosperity prayer. It's a petition for God to lead believers away from sinful temptations that could hurt them and to deliver them from the snares of the devil which could wreck their lives the very end of the verse this word evil could be translated as the evil one you may have a, even a, a note in your bible that that kind of offers that translation that this could be the evil one not just generic evil that's important because we know that bad things still happen to christians we're not immune to to trials and just things of this life this prayer is not about that kind of quote evil even if God allows trials into our lives, it's for our benefit and growth, never for our destruction. That's what the devil desires. Is it Peter who says he is he's like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour? The devil would love to devour the life of a Christian. He can't take your salvation from you, but he can wreck your life. If you follow sinful things and follow his deceptions, we need protection from that. From him. And so the end of this prayer recognizes the spiritual battle that every one of us faces every day. And we can all agree and say amen to the fact that we, needs God, we need God's guidance and we need God's protection in our lives from sinful temptations and from the deceptions of the devil. Everyone here needs that. There's some manuscripts that add here at the end this closing line, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. So the past couple weeks now, we've seen some just really practical teaching about prayer from Jesus and from Paul last week as well. Personal prayer is to be between you and God. You be alone with him. You be specific and detailed And let him reward you with his peace. Don't pray your private prayers in public to be seen by others. If that's what you want, that's what you get. You've got your reward. People saw you. Big deal. Don't make a show of your prayer life. But that doesn't mean all public prayers are wrong, of course. It's good for us to pray together. But those corporate prayers are different. They still need to be humble, but they need to be shorter in length. They need to be more universal and basic in nature since you're petitioning God on behalf of others. You know, include them in your prayer. Pray for things they can agree with. I didn't mention this earlier, but did you notice that all of these things Jesus prayed for are also things that God would agree to as well? In our private prayers, we may ask for specifics and God may say no or not right now. That's okay. He knows what's best. But all of these things that Jesus asked for are so basic and so universal that when would God ever say no to one of these things? Give us today what we need. No. Lord, please guide me. No. Lord, forgive me. No. That's not who God is. These things are praying for God's will in our lives. So Jesus gave us, no surprise, just the perfect example. You can repeat this prayer as a public prayer, verbatim, with a genuine heart. There's nothing wrong with that at all. But it wasn't given as a, just something to be recited mechanically. If a public prayer is worded differently but it conveys the same humble attitude and includes everyone and doesn't last all day. That's a good public prayer. That pleases God. I'm serious when I say this. Some of y'all might've gotten nervous. I don't know. These two sermons were not in response to any of our prayers. I haven't seen anyone praying privately here for show. I've never walked in and somebody's in here in the auditorium just praying out loud, hoping Brother Matt comes in and sees how you know holy they are praying. Never seen that. I haven't had to pull a Brother Bogard and call him the same person two or three times in public just to get him to shorten that length. If I ever do that, I don't know. That's, you know, now the cat's out of the bag. Y'all will know what I'm doing now. But we can always learn from Jesus' teaching. And we can always make changes if necessary. That's great. So whether this this and, and last week's sermon was just a reminder of things you already knew or brand new things or somewhere in between, We should always be measuring what we do in our lives and what we do in our worship services. Uh, Measure them next to the teachings of Christ. Always. And don't worry, I've already asked Brother Connor to pray at the close of service. I've already warned him. Everybody's really scared. Pressure's on him. I told him to keep it under an hour. I hope everyone here knows and everyone listening knows that God's kingdom's coming to this earth just as Jesus prayed. And it's our prayer at North Bryant that you're ready for that. If you've never trusted Jesus as your Savior, you're not ready for His kingdom. If you don't know Jesus, you're not prepared. But it's God's will for you to humble yourself and trust Him. It's our prayer that you'll do that. And if you need to talk with me about that or anyone else here, we're here for you. Let's stand. Let's pray as we prepare for an invitation. Our Father in heaven, you're holy. We thank you so much for your provisions in our life, especially your forgiveness that you've given us in Christ. We pray for your will to be done as this service closes and in our lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.